to think my way into this lecture, I built a crystal radio for the first time in 46 years. Um, in the 1920s, it's how many people would have listened to the wireless. It was 1920s Wi-Fi. I came across a letter in the Radio Times from August 1928. It's from a Miss Cornelius of London, and it won her a guinea. For those of you under 55 years of age, that's one pound and five pence in the new money, which is actually quite a lot then. But anyway, she won uh, just over a pound for writing this bit of verse. And uh, while the poetry itself is, you may feel, is of questionable uh, literary value, it says some quite interesting things about the state of radio in the 1920s. Dear Sir, I certainly agree with those who praise the BBC. A pair of phones, a crystal set, ten bob a year. For this I get a store of knowledge, wealth of fun, to cheer me when the day's work's done. Whatever other folk may say, I thoroughly enjoy a play. While comedy and bright reviews are just the thing to banish blues. Lowbrow, I'd be considered as, because I'm rather fond of jazz. But highbrow too, I love each note of music which great masters wrote. By foreign talks I strive to learn, I'm there when opera takes its turn. For weather forecasts, news reports, for talks on travel and on sports. When Mr Baldwin takes the air, or when the prince is in the chair, I listen in. By Greenwich time, I set my watch and Big Ben's chime. I listen to the church bells ring, I hear the congregation sing, and from the broadcast pulpits glean comfort from him who speaks unseen. O oh, give to me the happy mind, O oh, give me the contented kind that pleasure, knowledge, wealth will find, whatever be the programme. So if we look at that, um, there are some obvious things. The third line down, a pair of phones, that's a pair of headphones, uh, a crystal set, not unlike the one that uh, I showed you at the start that I built last week, mainly from scrap. Ten bob a year, it says on the fourth line. A radio license cost ten bob, that's ten shillings, or 50p in decimal currency, um, and it was 50p all the way from 1922, when the BBC started, till after the Second World War. So it stayed at 10 bob for a very long time. And by 1928, when Miss Cornelius was writing into the Radio Times, there were two and a half million radio licences. Look at the fifth line, knowledge, wealth of fun. Now, the Radio Corporation of America was founded in 1919, three years before the BBC, and was run by the young Russian-American businessman David Sarnoff, who believed that, quotes, broadcasting represents a job of entertaining, informing, and educating the nation, and should therefore be distinctly regarded as a public service. Now, those are words that were later echoed by John Reith when he ran the BBC, and they're usually uh, quoted as being uh, by John Reith. But actually, uh, David Sarnoff in America got there first. Look at the sixth line. When the day's work's done. Well, actually, programmes started at lunchtime when the BBC started, and by 1928, the year in which Miss Cornelius was writing, they started at coffee time, but, the point's a good one, when the day's work's done, most people listened in the evening. Eighth and ninth lines, 
play, comedy, review, there was a lot of drama output. Um, the comedian Tommy Handley pointed out that you needed completely different material for radio uh, than you had done if you were performing uh, in the theatre. And Handley reckoned that good material for comedy was radio itself, domestic things, because people listened at home, and radio announcers, who were the butt of many a wireless joke. Uh, so not the stuff of Music Hall, and Handley said you also had to invent funny and or distinctive voices. Obviously, visual gags didn't work. Fourth line from the bottom, uh, lowbrow. So there was the lowbrow, highbrow debate at the BBC from the very earliest years. Um, the first disc jockey was Christopher Stone in 1927, uh, who gave very informal presentation of light music off gramophone records, but interestingly wore a dinner jacket to present on the radio, even though his style was itself uh, very informal. Um, but uh, jazz, not very much. Reith, John Reith didn't like jazz, didn't want it to be broadcast, maybe because of its association in America with brothels. Uh, the two bottom lines, highbrow, great masters, there was uh, a classical night, and for some there was too much highbrow, and for some not enough. If you look at the right-hand column, foreign talks learn, again, the three-point plan. The Radio Corporation of America had said, entertain, inform, educate, whereas the BBC said, educate, inform, and entertain, so education first. Look at the second uh, line, opera, the first outside broadcast was from the Royal Opera House at the beginning of 1923, it was Mozart's Magic Flute. The third line, weather forecasts, the first shipping forecast was on uh, in November 1922, on the very day that the BBC started broadcasting, and the first weather forecast was a little after that, on the 26th of March 1923. Uh, also on the third line, news report. News was on the radio from the very start, but not before seven o'clock in the evening, so that newspapers weren't disadvantaged, except during the general strike of 1926, when there were no newspapers or the radio times, so then news was allowed to come earlier in the day. The BBC didn't have its own news operation until 1934, and it still couldn't broadcast news before 6 p.m. until World War II. Fourth line, travel and sport. Uh, the first live sports cast was in January 1927, Arsenal versus Sheffield United, if you're asking. One all draw at Highbury, if you're asking. The BBC had just received its Royal Charter in 1927, so it was able to broadcast sport. Fifth line, Mr Baldwin, that's Stanley Baldwin, the Prime Minister of the day, also on the fifth line, takes the air. Um, the noun air has subsequently been verbed, now we can air things. Uh, the sixth line, the prince, uh, that's a reference to the future Edward VIII, who on the 7th of October 1922 made an experimental broadcast. So that's a month before the BBC started, the prince, the future Edward VIII, uh, made a broadcast. Seventh and eighth lines, Greenwich time, so that's the Greenwich time signal, the pips, uh, which were in evidence from 1924 and have been uh, fabricated in Broadcasting House since 1990. Um, Big Ben was first used on New Year's Eve, 1923, 
Uh, and as we know at the moment, it's being recorded since 2017, and we're sure it's going to be back in 2021. At the moment, we have to listen to recordings of Big Ben. And then the last four lines, religious broadcasting. Um, the daily service officially began on the 2nd of January 1928, but had been experimentally broadcast at 10.15 in the morning in the previous year. Uh, generally, daily service, a hymn sandwich with a sermon from the studio, or a relay from a church in your region. And choral evensong every week at 3 o'clock p.m. on Thursdays, and the first one was 7th of October 1926 from Westminster Abbey, which was the early home of choral evensong. So there is, uh, as I say, a piece of uh, Radio Times uh, amusement, but actually quite useful for us into thinking our way back into the 1920s and what radio meant at the time. But what I'm celebrating here in this lecture uh, is something that occurred in 1920. These are the Marconi New Street Works in Chelmsford, in Essex. Note the two 450-foot transmission masts. This was the actual transmitter in the Marconi factory. There's Bill Ditcham, the Marconi engineer, who on loads of experimental broadcasts would sit there reading the newspaper, or even worse, sometimes Bradshaw's. In other words, he would just read the train timetable. Any old speech would do to test uh, how things were going. Um, and this was the uh, microphone that uh, Marconi came up with in 1920. Uh, as you can see, uh, it's just the normal of the day candlestick telephone handset and uh, there's a cigar box which has been taped together and put uh, on the front to collect the sound. Uh, so that's what they were working with, a converted telephone receiver with cigar box. And this is who we're celebrating now, Dame Nellie Melba. And as I was thinking about uh, the Heath Robinson setup. Um, that Dame Nellie Melba had to cope with in 1920, 100 years ago, um, I realised that during lockdown, when I'd been making split-screen videos from my daughter's bedroom, um, that's pretty Heath Robinson too. I mean, the technology obviously is slightly different, ring lights and iPhones, um, but nevertheless, still rather a Heath Robinson affair. So at 7.10pm at 10 past seven in the evening on the 5th of June, 1920, the Australian prima donna, Dame Nellie Melba, who was advertised as the world's very best artist, gave a half hour recital in Chelmsford. This became recognized as the first official radio broadcast in Britain. Now the Daily Mail paid a thousand pounds for that broadcast. That was a lot of money in 1920. And the Daily Mail laid on a train for Dame Nellie, and stooges were hired to line the deliberately circuitous route from Chelmsford Station to the Marconi factory. And the reason they did this is so that they could have these fake fans all along the route who would then run and be fake fans on another part of the route for which they brought a change of clothes for their subsequent appearance so that Dame Nellie wouldn't rumble the ruse. Now, the 59-year-old soprano sang from a workshop at the back of the Marconi Wireless and Telegraph Company, and she later described the Chelmsford recital as 
the most wonderful experience of my career. And get this, it was received all around Europe, as well as in Iran to the east and Newfoundland to the west. The Daily Mail called it a great initiation ceremony. It said, the era of public entertainment may be said to have completed its preliminary trials. Well, as sponsor, it would say that. And here's what Dame Nellie Melba began with. Home Sweet Home by Henry Bishop, sung by Dame Nellie Melba. And there is a blue plaque uh, in Chelmsford to commemorate where that broadcast came from. And famously, uh, three years before he died, Mark Haney said, have I done the world good or have I added a menace? Marconi set up shop on the seventh floor of Marconi House at London's Aldwych. And the Marconi Company's London station was known as 2LO, and its first concert for voice, cello and piano was broadcast on the 24th of June. The Prince of Wales, later Edward VIII, broadcast on the 7th of October. From 1922 to 1932, the headquarters of the BBC was Savoy Hill, at 2 Savoy Place, off London Strand. And 2LO was transferred to the BBC on the 14th of November, 1922. A day later, the BBC opened in Manchester and Birmingham, and Newcastle followed on Christmas Eve. And by the end of the year, John Reith had been appointed general manager of the BBC, the British Broadcasting Company, as it was in 1922. On the 8th of January, 1923, eight weeks after it went on air, the BBC's first outside broadcast, part of Mozart's The Magic Flute, came from the Royal Opera House, and that was followed by many other outside broadcasts from the Opera House. And by May 1923, the musical director at the Royal Opera House, Percy Pitt, had become part-time music advisor to the BBC. Under Pitt's guidance, the 2LO Dance Band, the 2LO Military Band, the 2LO Light Orchestra, and the 2LO Octet became constituent parts of the BBC's musical provision. At the time, there was some anti-American feeling within the BBC. Within certain factions, American culture was regarded as vulgar. And as I said, crucially, John Reith, the BBC's general manager, did not like jazz. Opera, symphonic music, chamber music, song, choral music, brass band, light music, and dance music were deemed acceptable for broadcast. Jazz was not. And this advertisement uh, 
caught my eye in the Radio Times uh, trying to blame uh, the reason, trying to suggest that the reason that you didn't like jazz was because your loudspeakers uh, weren't good enough. Now, this advertisement was taken from issue one of the Radio Times. Uh, the Radio Times slightly lagged behind uh, the formation of the BBC in November 1922. Uh, issue one was in the 28th of September 1923. And it's one of my prized possessions, but I actually own the first. First ever Radio Times. What a document. This week's issue is uh, 5018. So it's come away since then, but this is a remarkable uh, document, and I have obviously spent hours and hours looking at it. Uh, just to own it is uh, an extraordinary thing, but to read it, uh, uh, to see what it says, is extraordinary. And one of my favourite bits in this first issue is the uh, listeners' letters. Even though the BBC was less than one year old, you've already got a lot of Y-O-Y-O-Y type letters from listeners, and listeners are always in inverted commas, the listener. For instance, PJ from Birmingham wanted fewer straight classical concerts, he wanted more request programmes, and PJ didn't warm to talks with titles such as The Decrease of Malaria in Great Britain, The Rent Act, and How to Become a Solicitor. But Sidney Canning of Haverton Hill in County Durham reckoned that BBC talks were actually the best bits. And here's his reasoning. I quote, You see, with talks, we get something to keep, as it were, which we can use afterwards. Whereas amusing things such as music give pleasure for a while and then are only a memory. I feel sure that Mr Canning would have approved of Radio 4 were he alive today. Musically speaking, in 1924, the 20-year-old Stanford Robinson, Robbie, as he was known, was appointed BBC Chorus Master. And in September 1924, Robbie formed the professional BBC Wireless Chorus specifically to sing Rutland Boughton's opera, The Immortal Hour. Now, The Immortal Hour is practically unknown now, although at the time it was praised to the heights by, for instance, Elgar, Ethel Smythe, Arthur Bliss, George Bernard Shaw, Vaughan Williams, and many, many more. And here is a short extract from The Immortal Hour for which Robbie formed the BBC Wireless Chorus.
What is notable about the early days of radio is that the BBC played a lot of live material. Early radio relied much less on recordings than it does now. Bands, for instance, were first heard on the radio and then they were approached by record companies. So the BBC discovered and nurtured talent and the record companies marketed and sold that talent. As, for instance, here, in 1926, dance music ruled the airwaves and the 26-year-old pianist, Jack Payne, was appointed the BBC's director of dance music. Uh, Payne formed the BBC Dance Orchestra in 1928 and in 1929 the orchestra took part in the BBC's first television broadcast. Whistling in the dark, I see the lights all over town And I keep walking up and down while I am whistling in the dark like a lark, my song goes floating on the air. I envy every loving pair while I am whistling in the dark. Who cares what I am saying in my song? Who knows that I am praying someone will come along, strolling in the park without a single thing to do. The night is black and I am blue. That's why I'm whistling in In 1927, the year in which the British Broadcasting Company became the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC made its first music commission, and it was a choral ballet by Gustav Holst, The Morning of the Year. And it received its first performance at the Royal Albert Hall on the 7th of March, 1927. The BBC Wireless Chorus was joined by the National Chorus and Orchestra and the morning of the year was part of the 10th national concert given by the BBC. Another prize possession, this is the BBC handbook from 1928, uh, which talks about this and these national concerts, and the point of them was that they were to charge prices for admission as to place the concerts within the reach of almost everyone interested in music. So proper outreach going on at the BBC uh, in the 20s. As I say, this first commission was the morning of the year by Gustav Holst, and here's a tiny extract from it. Thank you. 
And in that year, 1927, the BBC saved the Queen's Hall promenade concerts. When the impresario Robert Newman had begun the proms in 1895, Newman stated that he wanted to train the public by easy stages, gradually raising the standard until I have created a public for classical and modern music, and the venue for it was London's two-year-old Queen's Hall. Famed for its beautiful acoustics. Uh, the point about the proms, as Newman set them up, was they were all about cheap ticket, tickets being close to the players, and the idea was that it would take classical music away from the elite. And another goal was disciplined orchestral training. Now, Newman had engaged the 26-year-old Henry Wood as conductor of the newly formed Queen's Hall Orchestra. Newman also marketed transferable season tickets. When Newman died in November 1926, the future of the proms looked bleak, so the BBC stepped in. Inherited from previous management, Monday proms featured Wagner and Fridays were Beethoven. And in, the, in 1927, the BBC proms opened with the national anthem followed by Elgar's overture, Cocaine, in London Town. Well, it would. In London Town was an obvious choice for a London audience, and Elgar had turned 70 just two months earlier. Now, orchestral provision at the BBC had got off to a grinding and not very successful start. The 18-piece wireless orchestra was founded under Dan Godfrey Jr., and the forces rose to 37 players for special occasions. This was sent to the Radio Times in memory of Tannhäuser, murdered by the London Wireless Orchestra, 19th of September, 1923. And the editor goes, absolutely fine to have criticism. It gives me stuff to publish, and you're absolutely entitled to your own opinion. But it seems it wasn't just the opinion of this anonymous uh, writer. Uh, in general, uh, standards of orchestral music at the time were not high in London, certainly not as high as they were on the continent. In 1925, it changed its name to the BBC Wireless Symphony Orchestra, and in 1927, the orchestra gave a series of concerts with 150 players, but that was still not good. And it was made worse by the fact that the Berlin Philharmonic came over to London and showed them how it should be, and then the Concertgebouw Orchestra came over from the Netherlands with Willem Mengelberg, uh, the New York Philharmonic with Toscanini. They all visited London, and there was no doubt that London needed to pull its socks up. So in response, Sir Thomas Beecham tried to form a BBC radio orchestra, but sadly at that point it didn't happen. But at the end of 1929, Edward Clark, programme planner at the BBC, hatched a plan for the formation of an orchestra of 114 full-time players who could then be split into four smaller groups. And this resulted in the formation of the BBC Symphony Orchestra under its first conductor, Adrian Bolt. Uh, and the orchestra was a very, very, it was a very special composition. It was... Uh, seasoned players, but the rank and file players were very young. Most of them were just fresh out of music college. So it was a mixture of the experience and the inexperience, and the sound was absolutely dynamic. Here they are, his Bolt and his BBC Symphony Orchestra. And here's Adrian Bolt himself briefly uh, introducing his orchestra. This is the BBC Symphony Orchestra. We are going to play you a part of Elgar's first Pomp and Circumstance March. 
although it was never finished by the composer, Elgar's third symphony was commissioned by the BBC in 1932. As recorded in the Daily Telegraph, the dedication of the symphony will be to the BBC, which must surely be the first corporation ever to be inscribed on the title page of a symphony. And if you want a bit more about uh, Elgar's third symphony, you can uh, review my lecture on unfinished music from uh, February in here. On the 17th of June, 1932, a Mr. Glover wrote to the Radio Times from his home in Bermondsey, describing himself as a man who has to work for a living. He felt let down by the BBC because mournful music is not very appetising for anyone who has to listen after a hard day's work. Glover's gripe was that he was, quote, never schooled to hear such beautiful classical music as we get from all those musicians with fancy names and cosmopolitan titles to their music. Well, at least he did admit it was beautiful. On the other side of the fence, uh, English contralto Dame Clara Butt had said five years earlier that wireless is helping to build up a vast new body of intelligent listeners. It is educating them by giving them the finest music and no less a figure than Igor Stravinsky, described the BBC in glowing terms as an eclectic organisation and praised the BBC for its promotion of new music with invincible tenacity. Now, uh, in 1932, on the Monday before Christmas, the BBC Empire Service was inaugurated. Now the World Service, but the BBC Empire Service was inaugurated in 1932 and broadcast from 5XX in Daventry. The BBC's Director General, by then Sir John Reith, played down this monumental initiative as he addressed the world on the 19th of December 1932. You can barely believe this. This is Reith about his own newly formed radio service. Don't expect too much in the early days. For some time, we shall transmit comparatively simple programmes which will neither be very interesting nor very good. Six days later, King George V struck a more optimistic tone in his first Christmas broadcast. I speak now from my home and from my heart to you all. To men and women so cut off by the snow, the desert, all the seas, that only voices out of the air can reach them. To all, to each, I wish a happy Christmas. God bless you. That, I think, is more like it. At first, the Empire Service limped along on a shoestring with news, gramophone records, dance music live from hotels and dance halls, chamber music reviews and talks. But there was one sea change that the Empire Service unwittingly instigated. At home, listening to the radio in the evening was the norm, whereas in the far-flung reaches of the British Empire, any time of day would do, particularly in places that were not served by any form of local broadcasting. And this did bring a sea change of listening habits. It didn't matter when you listened. 
The BBC moved from Savoy Hill to Broadcasting House in 1932. Here's a map of the area, and if you know it, you'll recognise uh, there in the top left is where the Broadcasting House is going to be, nestling next to the Langham Hotel by All Souls Church, just above the Queen's Hall and St George's Hall. And within the newly constructed Broadcasting House at London's Portland Place, there was a concert hall in which had been constructed a four-manual organ with movable console by John Compton. Almost 3,000 pipes were operated by 124 illuminated push-button stops as opposed to draw stops. This was a concert organ, not a church instrument. Religious broadcasting came from higher up the building, where Studio 3E was decked out as a chapel for the broadcasting of the daily service at 10.15 in the morning, Mondays to Saturdays. Four singers were initially used for these religious broadcasts. And in 1934, a larger group of eight was formed known as Singers B. It's very difficult when you're working with a quartet, because if one person goes sick, you're in trouble. And this octet, Singers B, uh, famously included a 24-year-old Peter Piers, later to become one of the most celebrated English tenors of the 20th century. And even better than that, in the year that Singers B was formed, the BBC commissioned Benjamin Britten's A Boy Was Born, and Peter Piers was introduced to Britain at that premiere. In 1936, another new Compton organ was installed at the BBC in St George's Hall, Langham Place, a few yards from Broadcasting House. This theatre organ had four manuals, almost 2,000 pipes, and 260 stops, including literally bells and whistles, actual bells and actual whistles. And a grand piano nearby could be played from the organ's console. This was a great bit of kit. And to tame this beast, Reginald Fort was appointed BBC Theatre Organist, and Reggie received thousands of fan letters every week. Uh, now I'll give you a representation of a stall. I could even give you a dog fight. But I expect the most popular music that will be played on this organ will be rhythmic music like this. Reggie Fort was extremely popular with the public, and in 1937, he was voted most popular radio entertainer in Britain. He polled twice as many votes as Gracie Fields. 
And because of his popularity with the public, Reggie Fort left his permanent post at the BBC to spread his wings and travel the country. And Roderick McPherson was appointed theatre organist in Fort's place. Sandy McPherson, as he was known, was in post when World War II broke out. And he provided the lion's share of broadcasting in that first month while the BBC was working out the form that wartime broadcasting should take. So they just put McPherson at the organ. McPherson played every day, and some listeners rather insensitively suggested that they'd rather face the German guns than listen to more McPherson at his organ. They should have been more careful what they wished for, because St George's Hall was bombed on the 24th of September 1940, and its new organ destroyed. And to make it worse, a few months later, on the night of the 10th of May 1941, the adjacent Queen's Hall was destroyed by an incendiary bomb and with it many instruments belonging to the London Philharmonic Orchestra. And the photograph of the by then 72-year-old Henry Wood amidst the burnt-out shell of the Queen's Hall brings a lump to the throat. The BBC Symphony and the London Philharmonic immediately relocated to the Colosseum and the 1941 proms relocated to the Royal Albert Hall where they've remained ever since. Now, by 1939, there had been 9 million radio licences in Britain. And in the Second World War, the national and the regional programmes were amalgamated into the home service. And that was complemented by the forces programme. So it was the home service and the forces programme during the war. And the forces programme paved the way for the light programme. And the light programme was launched 82 days after VE Day, a few days ahead of schedule. Good morning, everyone. This is the BBC light programme on wavelengths of 1,500 and 261 metres. It's the first time we've said those words, BBC light programme, which we hope are going to mean for you now and in the days to come all that is best in radio entertainment from 9 o'clock in the morning to midnight. Now I'm handing over the microphone to a colleague who will bring you the news. Japanese warships damaged in Tuesday's... Now, the light programme was not just Radio 2, as we now know it, because there were, at that point was no specifically classical music station as yet. So it broadcast a whole wealth of things. On its first day, uh, you still had Sandy. Sandy McPherson was still there playing his organ early on. There was a saxophone quartet, a couple of light plays, a quiz, some sport, a church service, great music, it was called. That's Haydn, Mozart and Beethoven, of course. Hymns, the talky municipal orchestra, a male voice choir, BBC recordings of the emigre Austrian tenor Richard Tauber and the band of the Grenadier Guards. And in 1946, alongside the home service and the light programme, the third programme was launched. 
This wasn't a new idea. Uh, when the BBC had been less than two years old back in 1924, it had been suggested that a separate wavelength should be made available for highbrow education and better class material. Early BBC programming with just the one channel essentially had had its critics. Tudor music, groaning chamber music, newfangled songs and readings from unknown poets were criticised not just by the listening public but at board level. And 22 years later, the third programme became this highbrow haven or dumping ground, depending on your point of view. And the first music broadcast on the third programme at 6.45pm on Michaelmas Day 1946 was music by J.S. Bach. A safe choice. Highbrow, but uncontroversial. It was Bach's Goldberg variations. But here's a thing. Played on a harpsichord, not a piano, and by a woman, Lucille Wallace. Perhaps predictably, an all-English concert followed, which began with a special commission from 33-year-old Benjamin Britten, his festival overture, and then music by Handel and Purcell. Later on in the evening, more English music by Vaughan Williams, Arthur Bliss, and Parry. And then by way of balance, because the third programme aimed to be international, it played from France Nadia Boulanger's pioneering 1937 recordings of madrigals by the Italian Baroque composer Monteverdi. Sir William Haley, Director General of the BBC, wrote of the third programme that it will have no fixed points. It will devote to the great works the time they require. It will seek every evening to do something that is culturally satisfying and significant. In declaring these standards, the BBC realises that it is aiming high. Now, after the Second World War, technology was steaming ahead. Magnetic tape was being introduced, and then long-playing LP records. Now, the company RCA in America had tried LPs in 1931, but they couldn't make them work commercially. Uh, these early experimental LPs only had 10 minutes per side, so they were only twice as long as 78 records. Uh, Columbia and ARC also made LP experiments in the early 1930s. Now, the first LP was of the second greatest baritone of the 20th century, Frank Sinatra. It was his first studio album, recorded by Columbia Records in Hollywood and New York in 1945, and it was re released originally as The Voice of Frank Sinatra in March 1946 on 278s. That's the cover uh, you're looking at here. So originally released on 78s. And then it was re-released as a 10-inch LP two years later 
So that's the first LP, a 10-inch uh, LP, because at first Columbia didn't use 12-inch for pop, and so Frank's 10-inch was uh, only a dozen minutes per side. The first 12-inch LP was the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto with Nathan Milstein as soloist and Bruno Walter conducting the New York Philharmonic. Again, this was originally released on 78s in 1945, but re-released in 1948 as a single LP. Now, the benefit for classical music, I think, should be fairly obvious. If you're listening to the Mendelssohn Concerto, you finish the first movement, that's fair enough. There would normally be a cough break uh, in a live concert, so you don't mind turning the LP over from side A to side B. But at this point in the score where you finish that glorious second movement and there's that very famous, slightly unusual recitative bit from the uh, solo violin and the strings, which follows on naturally from the end of the second movement. You don't want to destroy the atmosphere and then goes, as you can see on the far right here, with the the beginning of the third movement. This relies on some sort of continuity. And for the first time, listeners would have been able to sit there while side B played with the second and the third movements together of the Mendelssohn uh, Fiddle Concerto. And so this was the first 12-inch uh, LP released on the 12th of Ju uh, 21st of June 1948 with Nathan Milstein on the violin. And I will finish with... It had already become quite a famous performance because many people had seen it live uh, in concert and then it had come out on 78. But I can only imagine the thirst for this first 12-inch LP, as I say, with this wonderful thing that you didn't actually have to turn over between the second and the third movements. But here's the end of the concerto with Milstein.
Jeremy, thank you very much for what was a really, really interesting lecture. Um, we do have a few questions from the online audience, of course. Of course. <laughs> um, easy one first, I think, and I was wondering this very same thing. If Frank Sinatra is the second best baritone, who is the first? Elvis. Of course. Obviously. Um, of course. I mean, I could throw in there Hans Hotter, maybe. Sabrin, although I think his best work's been in the 21st century rather than the 20th. But yeah, Elvis, greatest baritone of the 20th century, no question. Um, we have another question from an audience member. The quality of the recordings is remarkable. Are these as broadcast or have they been digitally cleaned? So, some of them have been digitally um, uh, enhanced. That's absolutely true. Um, but some of them not. I mean, I think some, some of the early sound quality to me is uh, remarkable. You just can't believe that all that stuff has been done in this analog way, and, you know, of, a, of a, you know, a needle bouncing along and a bit of Bakelite. I mean, no, so generally these days we can't help ourselves and we tend, to, we tend to tidy things up and things have been tidied up and I've tidied them up a bit further and so on. So yes, uh, it's slightly cheating in the same way that you sort of, uh, a couple of those uh, photographs have had sort of colour I think mm. the one of the Marconi transmitter, there's a bit of colour added, digitally enhanced. Um, but I think, it, yes, in spite of the fact that the sound quality is obviously uh, in its infancy, it's still remarkable, I think, given what you're working with. Absolutely. Um, what are the three main things today's radio must urgently learn from the 78 era? Um... That's, I, I, I could duck out of that question and say I will answer that in the third lecture. Um, but I, I think um, perhaps, uh, and this is going to be slightly controversial, I could address this in the third lecture, but um, as I was saying, in the very early days, um, much of the, recorded, uh, much of the uh, broadcast uh, uh, diet was live. There was a lot of live broadcasting. And I know that's difficult, and I know it's expensive, but I think that's, for me, what characterises uh, early radio. So, for instance, when you have something like that Nadia Boulanger recording, you know, obviously uh, a recording from France, and it is a recording, that's one thing. Uh, but I think um, just, the, just how exciting live performance on radio is, and I certainly remember uh, as, as a kid, you know, the things I used to get most excited about um, apart from the review programmes, um, were things like the live evening concerts and the, the live proms, and just knowing that there were people in the Albert Hall, and I was there in Stoke-on-Trent, and, and we were together. <laughs> Somebody else was also asking if you are going to be uh, speaking to later eras, and um, yes, obviously you will be in your series. Um, your next lecture is, I think, the Christmas lecture. Yes, and so I rather left out um, uh, quite a lot of the church music because I'll be addressing that. So on the 10th of December, I'll be basically going from 1928 to 1954 and specifically with Boris Ord and the work that he did at King's College, Cambridge. Uh, so starting in 1928, which was the first radio broadcast from King's College, Cambridge, and then finishing in 1954, which was the first television broadcast from King's College, Cambridge. So in one sense, it, it, it slightly will go out of this. So I, I left that. But I will be dealing with that on the 10th of December. And then there are two further lectures in the series, Radio in the LP Era, 1948 to 1982, and Radio in the Digital Era, 
1982 onwards. And you can find the details of when those will be uh, given on our website. I think that's everything from the questions. It's all the time we have. Um, I wanted to thank everybody for uh, joining us this evening. Um, thank you for your attention. Thank you for your questions. We will be sending everyone who registered for the lecture a link to the um, video and the transcript very soon. Please do join us next week. We've got a wide variety of lectures next week. Um, Offensive Shakespeare. The Psychology of the Stock Market, Life on Mars, about the Mars Explorations, England's Catholic Reformation, and the first in our series on Russian piano masterpieces. So I think there's something for everybody there. Thank you very much. Good evening. <laughs>